This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. As our regular listeners know, Mondays are Mayor's Monday here on the show, and we have with us today the mayor of Salem, Massachusetts, Kim Driscoll, who is in her fifth term as the mayor of Salem. She is also here because she is, well, because she wanted to be on Mayor's Mondays. Oh, actually, she's running for lieutenant governor. <laughs> well, and I wanted to be on Mayor's Monday. And wants to talk about Hocus Pocus, too. Oh, my goodness. It's coming out this year. I can't year. wait. Yes. It takes place in Salem. Newman, I didn't expect you to get it. but it's Thank okay. you. It's a cultural reference that's beyond me. Thank you. From uh, the 90s. So you've had a little bit of a while to get okay. it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I either didn't know or I forgot <laughs> one or the other. I'll take, I'll take the fifth. So, uh, Madam Mayor, Kim Driscoll, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. You're... you're on your way to Greenfield, what's in Greenfield today? Let's start there. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to make sure we're experiencing every corner of this Commonwealth, thrilled to be able to be in Western Mass and make sure not only that we're listening, but we're sharing ideas. So meeting with the mayor of Greenfield, going to be talking a little bit about uh, their internet uh, issues that they have there and opportunities, uh, looking at a food processing plant that takes a lot of the local produce and turns it into products and going to spend some time talking about local issues regarding infrastructure, a big need, not just in Western Mass, but in communities across the Commonwealth, a big capital expenses, the ability to afford those public safety buildings, public works buildings, how we can, as a state, better support those efforts. There is a Democratic primary. You were the victor at the Democratic Convention, some 41, 41.6% of the votes at the Democratic Convention. Uh, there are three Democrats running for Lieutenant Governor, uh, you, uh, uh, Tammy Gouveia, and Eric Lesser. Uh, there are two Republicans as well, but frankly, uh, I don't think they're actually going to matter very much here because, yes, there will be a governor's race, but no, I don't think that there's going to be I, – I know no one's going to take any of this for granted and everyone's going to work very hard, and I understand all that, but uh, the idea that we would elect a Republican governor – particularly one who is really a Trump supporter, I just find that just beyond the pale of believability. So let's talk a bit about what you would, what an administration would look like with uh, you as the lieutenant governor, uh, presumably with Maura Healy as the governor. So tell us, what would, what, what would that be? How, it would be? how would it be different from the present administration, or, or would it be similar? You know, I think the role of being governor and certainly lieutenant governor gives you an opportunity to really impact uh, cities and towns in our commonwealth, the places where people live. As mayor, one of the reasons that I get excited every day to, in, in terms of being able to go to work is because you get to make a meaningful impact. I like to say I'm part of the get stuff done wing. There's no Republican or Democratic pothole. There's just a pothole that needs to get fixed. And people are really expecting you to resolve their challenges. I'm hoping as part of this next administration to be a strong partner to a Governor Healy to put Massachusetts in a position to tackle some of the things that we've talked about doing, but frankly haven't taken on. And instead, by the way, a lot of us in the local level have had to step up and do more. Whether you're talking about early ed, we've expanded pre-K in my community, something we know working families could really benefit from and certainly supports our youngest learners, or housing. We are at crisis levels when it comes to housing, particularly affordable housing. And I hear that everywhere I go, even in places where housing is more affordable. None of those challenges, whether you're talking about housing, schooling, uh, the climate, the climate uh, challenges we have, transportation, you can't solve them without action at the local level. So I'm, I'm hopeful in my role to be a, a key piece of the, the network building out a stronger Massachusetts. And that means connecting with communities, making sure they have the resources, using the power of convening that you have out of a governor's office to, to put your thumb on the scale for places that need a little bit more help. Uh, and to be able to advance an agenda that, that puts residents here first at a time when people are hurting. Tell us a bit more, if you would, please, about the expansion of pre-K in your city. I'd really be interested to hear about that. Yeah, we're a gateway city in Salem, which means we have lots of different uh, incomes, backgrounds, races, languages spoken within our schools. And we really saw a need to get children in a high-quality pre-K experience earlier. Rather than take it on as a universal pre-K method, meaning you're just part of your school district, you're essentially expanding a grade, um, we were uh, concerned about sort of undermining our existing child care providers who take care of kids who are less than four years old. So we have what's called a mixed model. We have both in-district classrooms 
and we support our existing child care providers so they can pay their educators more, reduce the cost of child care for uh, families that are using, using those services, and expand uh, opportunities within the community-based partners and within our schools. It has been a complete home run. We put our thumb on the scale a little bit in terms of the students we're serving to make sure our most economically disadvantaged students uh, had a, sort of a higher uh, number in terms of getting into this. We had a lottery-based system getting into the program because we know our students who, who, for whom English is a second language or who come from an economically disadvantaged background will get more out of a high-quality pre-K experience. I'd love for us not to have to make choices like that. There are whole states, Bill. The state of Alabama, a red state, Every four-year-old has a high-quality pre-K experience there. Tennessee has done much to um, expand high-quality pre-K experiences. The research We're is talking clear. about Alabama, that state that's next to Mississippi? That's that, right. That, that Alabama? That's right. And you know who led the effort there? Their business community recognized that this is not only going to help our families who are working, but those youngest learners and give them a positive trajectory out. So they actually pushed the governor there to invest $10 million to start their high-quality pre-K experience. And is this a program that you see that should and can be expanded for all of Massachusetts? 1,000%. The research is clear. Getting students and our youngest learners a really solid start, it just can't be any pre-K. It really needs to be high quality. And frankly, we should we should say, you know, birth to four. But let's, let's start. We have some communities that don't even have full-day kindergarten. So, you know, in my estimation, the legislature's done a lot of work on this. They've assessed a lot of the, the challenges. Um, we have historic resources. This is one of those investments that we could make that could lead to longer-term prosperity, both for those youngest learners and help our working families at the same time. As I understand it, the deficits in learning that accrue early on follow a student for a long time, and therefore getting students into high-quality educational programs early really matters. I, I get that. What I would like some more clarification on, and I appreciate your helping me understand this, is what can the Massachusetts legislature, what can the executive branch do to make this happen at a local level? So a couple different things. One is obviously funding. It is more expensive to educate children uh, at a younger level if we're incorporating that into the public school system. But we have a number of communities who are actually also seeing uh, declining enrollment. We're just all having less kids. So you, you may have space in schools, and there's a marriage to be made between putting four-year-olds in an early learning environment. Where we also have some needs are addressing the licensure changes. So uh, the ratios, the licensure requirements for early education, that's four and below, are different than for students who are going through our typical K through 12 systems, which means for after school care, it's really difficult to put that in place without some adjustment in how we think about licensing and some unity in how we think about uh, caring for kids at that four-year-old age and not necessarily making it uh, an obstacle to overcome. And the third thing I'd say is technical assistance. You know, adding in a four-year-old program, whether it's through a mixed model, as we've done in Salem, as Boston has done, or uh, adding them into a universal pre-K model within your school districts, you really need to make sure you're understanding, you know, what's the curriculum, how is this going to work, particularly a mixed model. And there's some technical assistance and planning pieces that are re really critical for the program to be successful. Again, you don't want to just have a pre-K program. You want to have a high-quality pre-K program. In Salem, in your city of Salem, what percentage of the four-year-olds are in the school system's uh, model? Uh, what percentage are in uh, daycare, uh, as, as you describe it, in this hybrid model? Yeah, so we've got a, a rich mix of pre-K options in Salem right now. Um, so we have our number, some of our top child care providers, private providers, your YMCAs, your something called the Point Neighborhood Child Care Programs. And then we ended up having another four classrooms within the public school setting. But overall in Salem, Bill, we have folks who are staying with abuelas, you know, in in-home in situations with family members, in-home daycares with folks who are licensed providers. And what we found and one of the reasons we really leaned into trying to help with our pre-K program is you had students coming to kindergarten with a, just this complete variation. You know, kids who may have spent a lot of time in front of a TV to kids who were in really good settings, you know, with a, a sort of a pre-K curriculum that benefited them. And we, we want to try and make sure we're also thinking about uniform PD, so professional development. The other part of our program is we've unified anyone who's providing you know, uh, education to four-year-olds to say, let's all get on the same page with respect to curriculum, with respect to professional development opportunities. Let's train up. So, so regardless of which program the student is in, they're pretty much will 
be prepared All for aligned. kindergarten at the time. So what percentage actually is in, this, in the... You know, we've got about 16% of our students who are in sort of a, you know, a, an in-home setting, uh, another 16% who are in a school-based setting, and then a whole lot that we're not res- necessarily sure of. So um, we're still assessing out, you know, how many are in our school right now? We're talking, we have four classrooms that we expanded in Salem Public Schools. Um, that's uh, roughly 80 kids. And you, we expect around 600 students every, you know, every year entering a, pre, a, a kindergarten class. So it's still relatively small it in is. terms of the total population. Do you hope to expand it? Exactly. That's what we're doing. We're using some of our ESSER funding to expand the program. But it's not, it's not inexpensive. You're talking millions of dollars a year being added you know, to both city and school budgets to help accommodate this. We're using some of the, the additional federal funding we have. But for this to be sustainable, we need to plan out a model. Uh, we don't want to have a cliff effect and have this go away. Is this part of a Maura Healy plan as well? Have you talked to <laughs> well, the, I know you that talked she, to the uh, candidate for governor? I have not talked to the candidate for governor, but I know she feels strongly about pre-K and is certainly um, you know, toward pre-K facilities and recognizes this needs to be part of a future in Massachusetts if we're serious about helping primarily women who end up uh, usually being the caregivers who end up staying home or not able to get back to work in a full capacity, but working families in general. And like I said, those youngest learners, to your point, whether it's third grade reading levels or high school graduation rates, they just skyrocket in comparison to students who haven't had that experience. We are speaking with the mayor of Salem, Kim Driscoll, who is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. I, I'd like to uh, turn the uh, prism here a bit and ask you about the race itself. You have two uh, opponents for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. What is your pitch about distinguishing yourself from the other two? Everyone uh, uh, says, I'm progressive. I'm a progressive Democrat. I stand for the following great values, uh, which I think actually all all of that is true. But what's the distinguishing factor in your your judgment or what's your pitch to the governor, to the governor, to the voters in this regard? You know, I think the experience of mayor definitely stands out. I have two legislators that I'm that are in this race with, and I think you're right. We're aligned, I would say, very similarly in many of our uh, positions and policy positions. But the type of experience being mayor where there is no hiding, where you are an executive, you're putting together budgets, you're working with people, some of whom voted for you, some of whom didn't, to marshal together plans, trying to come up with an aligned and shared vision. Being mayor, you're also chairing the school committee. You have just a very rich and varied background uh, when you're running a city, especially a city like Salem, which, as I mentioned, is fairly diverse, is a place that uh, is almost 400 years old. Uh, We are working hard to try and you know, be a hip, historic, vibrant destination. And you've got to bring people together to do that um, at a time when resources can be scarce. I've managed a city during a recession. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, local government, no hiding, nonpartisan. You make decisions every day for people that you know, your neighbors, your friends, and that you can't, not, you can't run from them. You're going to see them the next day in the grocery store on the youth, side li- youth soccer sidelines. I think it makes you more accountable um, I think of local government as a place where, and for me, for certain, having been reelected five times, people need to trust even when they disagree with you. And people disagree with decisions coming out of City Hall, for sure, in my community. But I think they value that um, the decisions that are being made, there's listening going on, and that they're made in the best interest of our community, even when they may disagree with them. In the article in the, uh, the Republican newspaper, MassLive.com, of July 3rd, Sunday. Uh, the article seems to draw a distinction between you and your two opponents for the Democratic nomination in terms of their having experience in the legislature and having worked on those kind of national and statewide issues, um, distinguishing their experience from yours as a mayor. Do you see that as an important distinction? I do because I, I, the work I've done both in Salem as mayor and in Chelsea when they were coming out of receivership is the work that's meant to better and improve communities. I know what it takes to be a city that's successful, and I think in this role as lieutenant governor, I can really work and be a strong ally to other communities. And we are not going to solve any of the challenges in this commonwealth without action at the local level. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where we can best impact the quality of life in the places people live. And that's a language I speak and one that I love. So I, I do think that experience is relevant. I think it's helpful. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons I'm in this race is because I don't see folks currently running in any of the, the gubernatorial slots um, or any, frankly, statewide office that brings a degree of experience from the local level. 
in this article, and we'll uh, leave this in just a moment, it does seem to indicate that you thought that the uh, model of Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito with uh, Governor Charlie Baker is actually a good model. Is it? Well, I would say it's not only the model that um, Lieutenant Governor Polito used, it was also the model that Lieutenant Governor Murray used, who was the former mayor of Worcester, who was Lieutenant Governor under uh, Governor Deval Patrick. The last 16 years, we've really seen local um, local officials uh, utilize the position of local of of, of uh, lieutenant governor to be that liaison, that individual who they went to. You know, there's 40 mayors in the Commonwealth. There's 351 cities and towns. I like to say there's a lot of birds in the nest. There are issues and challenges, and who is going to be that key person that you rely on in state government? They they can you know be a broad range of issues from education to infrastructure to a challenge you might be having with a state agency, and you do need a go-to person who hopefully not just is a, a sympathetic ear on the other end of the phone, but that you can work with and, as I said, be the strategic ally. We have such opportunities, um, not just in Western Mass, but in many communities outside of Boston. We can't be a successful commonwealth if our cities and towns aren't working and thriving. And that means beyond you know, the Seaport District in Boston and Kendall Square, there are opportunities for us to do more. I see that in my role as somebody who's been a city builder in Chelsea and in Salem, um, as a, a very strong allegiance to what happens on the ground locally. Uh, mayor Driscoll, you've mentioned Chelsea a couple times. You're the yeah. mayor of Salem. Why don't you just backfill for us a minute and tell us about your experience in Chelsea? Sure, happy to. I was fortunate to work in Chelsea as they came out of receivership as their chief legal counsel and then later as their deputy city manager. At a time that I arrived in Chelsea, you know, the city was still very much on its knees. The last five mayors had either, you know, lost their ticket to practice law or had gone to jail. It was a really tough time. And uh, there wasn't a lot of accountability there. And I was part of a, a team that brought back renewed investment, renewed engagement with community members, and certainly re renewed accountability for local government uh, at a time when I think uh, the city of Chelsea really needed it. Um, I had always lived in Salem, and uh, you know, I'm a Navy brat, actually. I born in Hawaii, lived all over, but had lived in Salem and eventually decided I wanted to put that experience to work for my own hometown. So Mary Driscoll, let's talk about the politics of this for a minute. One thing that you said, and I should uh, note for our, our listeners that I was one of the members of the panel that was asking questions of the lieutenant governor candidates uh, here in Northampton when that forum uh, was presented. Um, and you said something I thought was really uh, qu quite uh, uh, nuanced and skillful at the time. There were five five candidates. Uh, two have been eliminated because they did not uh, make it through the Democratic convention. One was uh, Adam Hines. Senator Hines got 12.5 percent. He needed 15 percent in order to be on the ballot. So he has been eliminated. He's one of the Western Massachusetts candidates along with Eric Lesser. And you said something like, well, look, I know I'm not from here, and I know you have candidates from here, but I want you to consider me anyway. I thought that was a nice way of putting it. Um, uh, but there is the reality of Western Massachusetts always feeling like we're playing second fiddle to the rest of the state. Um, and Eric Lesser is a Western Massachusetts candidate uh, and uh, is well known, of course, for his uh, uh, encouraging and fighting for a West-East rail, as we call it here. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that uh, Western Massachusetts versus, not versus the rest of the state, but certainly playing second fiddle to the rest of the state, both in terms of economic uh, uh, assistance from Boston and uh, political influence as well. I mean, I think folks are spot on to feel that way. Um, Western Mass has certainly not seen the same level of investment. When we look at Auditor Bump's report about what's happening, the, the inequities that exist between uh, not only Western Mass, but rural parts of Massachusetts. You can also go to places in the South Coast, Southeastern Mass, where people also feel like they're a little bit closer to Rhode Island and no, don't necessarily capture the same level of investment. And I like to say I understand that, and I don't have to be from your hometown. I'm not the hometown gal, but I care about the success of hometowns. When I go to Holyoke, I see immense opportunity, beautiful architecture. Gateway cities used to be the hub of their regional economic you know, existence. There were places where great wealth was made in communities in various places. If you're talking about Lynn, it's the shoe industry. could be the paper industry. It could be lots of different industries during that period of industrialization. 
where you saw We're talking growth. about a lot of empty factory buildings. Exactly. That, that, but it could be used for housing. Such prominence things. now in terms of opportunities for housing. Uh, I actually think there's opportunities for jobs. Look, I'm a huge supporter of rail. Salem has the busiest commuter rail station in the MBTA system. We benefit from having access to Boston via rail. But rail is not the only answer. So we need west-east rail, as you called it, for sure, to be able to get people back and forth for the climate values, for the opportunities to grow uh, both economically. But I don't think Western Mass wants their entire economic success tied to the city of Boston. We need opportunities for jobs in this region, and we need ways to get around for people to get around in this region, meaning within their own city and adjacent cities. Those are rideshare, on-demand rideshare programs. We started one in Salem. There is opportunities for us to do more to serve other regions, and to make sure there's economic prosperity here. We have a world-class life sciences industry in Massachusetts. All the R&D happens. All the brain power happens. A lot of it in Cambridge and Boston. It's expanding, but not necessarily far enough. But where things are manufactured, biomanufacturing, that happens in other states right now. There's no reason we couldn't see opportunities for that to happen in places that are a little more uh, outside of Boston and in places that have opportunity, like those empty mills in Holyoke, as you mentioned. And there are other places as well. Well, since we're on the subject of Holyoke, um, I'd like to maybe, since we just have a minute left, conclude by asking about that. Holyoke's school system has been in receivership for a long time. I'd like to know where you stand with regard to uh, support of charter schools or not charter support of charter schools in terms of the a number of charter schools and caps and support of public schools. And I know it's a big question for to ask you an answer in a minute, but uh, I'd appreciate your uh, top line. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I do not support expanding the cap on charter schools. And largely I'm a mayor and I, I know how precious those resources are. And we have a charter school in Salem. Um, we don't have a hostile relationship with them, I want to be clear. But I wouldn't want to see it expanded further, taking dollars away from you know our community and our public schools. Um, with respect to receivership, you know there are some communities that put their schools in receivership. I think in Holyoke, um, it was you know it was sought at the time, or certainly not necessarily. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't uh, terribly opposed. Let's put it that way. That's a better way for sure. Um, and maybe there are times when there is such instability where that might make sense. But and the state did say we're taking you over, and the city kind of said okay, right? Um, I want to be clear. I don't think that. I think education is a community mission, right? I think it's best done by community members and locally. We have leveraged our partners in my community from museums to the park service site to youth service groups. And it's not just the mayor's job. It's not just the superintendent's job. It's not just the educator at the front of a classroom. It's everyone's job. And in my estimation, if you find that you have to bring in receivership because things are so unstable, it is meant to be a short term. Let's get things stabilized. Let's make sure folks are trained around accountability. And let's make sure we're handing things back over to our local community leaders. That is the best way to see improvements in education, in my estimation. I certainly don't support it. Uh, happening in Boston right now. And I hope um, that we can find a pathway forward for accountability for kids, because that's who we're talking about who's at stake, while recognizing that local control is is really what we need in terms of education being a community mission. On this Mayor's Monday, we have been speaking with Kim Driscoll, who is in her fifth term as Salem's mayor. She is on her way to Greenfield, and we promised we'd get you there relatively on time, <laughs> so your campaign day does not start too late and on our, due to our fault. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Really appreciate your being with us today. Kim Driscoll is a candidate for lieutenant governor. The Democratic primary, the Republican primary for that matter, too, is September 6th. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thanks for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Many sights to see. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. 
Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are buried in berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, schnozberries. Okay, they don't have any schnozberries, but they've got every other kind of local berry going. State Street, Fruit Store, and Cooper's Corner have always offered produce, picked by our Connecticut River Valley neighbors as soon as, and as long as, they're available. So come get fruit at a fruit store. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street, Fruit Store in Northampton, and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Lawrence. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We are going to spend a lot of time on the show in coming weeks and months with candidates for various down ballots, so to speak, offices, uh, including uh, lieutenant governor and, of course, governor's candidates as well. Uh, it is actually a really important series of offices that will be decided. Many of them, as a practical matter, will be decided in the Democratic uh, primary on September the 6th. Uh, I thought that uh, Kim Driscoll was made a really interesting presentation here, Monty. What did you think? I think so, too. Quite impressive. I met all, all the candidates at one point or another and now after having met Kim Driscoll. And uh, I think we, we uh, I don't want to say we can't lose, but I think there are a, a stellar spate of slate of candidates there. Right. And we will have, uh, I do plan to have Eric Lesser and uh, uh, Tammy Gavea back on the show as well. Uh, so we will we will follow this race. An interesting uh, perspective on a, a state constitutional office that is really uh, ill-defined in many ways. The uh, the uh, uh, lieutenant governor uh, has uh, well one specific uh, role that's that's set forth, and that is to chair the uh, governor's council, which handles judicial nominations and pardons and commutations. And, of course, stepping in if the governor resigns uh, or can't perform their duties. But beyond those constitutional requirements, they're free to define the office. And uh, lieutenant governors can and will do that. I like what Governor Baker and Polito have done, though, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito, who has become sort of an ambassador for the state. I've seen her many times out in Western Mass. I don't think I've ever seen the governor. Uh, personally, out oh, here, so. that pr that little problem. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> why we why we might feel slightly ignored from time to time here in Western Massachusetts. But better than nothing to have the lieutenant governor come and and be supportive of certain things that are going on in the western part of the state. Right. I agree with that. We just mentioned. I just mentioned the governor's council, and we are going to be speaking with Sean Allen, who is one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination for the governor's council. We will speak with John right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts police chiefs should no longer deny or impose restrictions on licenses to carry a gun just because the applicant doesn't have a good reason to carry. Attorney General Maura Healy released this guidance Friday for police chiefs in the wake of the decision overturning a gun permitting law in New York. Under that law, New York residents needed to show proper cause or an actual need 
to carry a concealed handgun in public for self-defense. Healy's guidance says police can still ask applicants their reasons for applying for a license to carry, but can no longer deny or restrict licenses because they believe the person doesn't have a good reason. The new $4.3 million public safety complex in West Hampton is taking longer than expected. The completion date has now been bumped until the fall. Construction challenges, including the discovery of vermiculite, as well as change orders and a shortage of construction workers, have caused the setback. Residents approved a Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion override to finance the project in March of 2021, and the former public safety facility at 48 Stage Road was demolished the following month. Massachusetts Department of Public Health has awarded the Mass in Motion Statewide Health Program $1.1 million. Mass in Motion seeks to improve access to healthy food and exercise across Massachusetts communities. The funding from this grant will be used to support the mission of providing equitable access to nutrition and physical activity in 42 towns and cities. Mostly cloudy today, chance for some afternoon showers, a high of 82 to 86. Showers drizzle likely tonight, might even be a thunderstorm, an overnight low of 62 to 68. Mostly sunny and windy tomorrow, a high of 84 to 88. And then a sun cloud mix, chance for a shower, low 80s on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. En un golpe a la lucha contra el cambio climático, la Corte Suprema limitó el jueves cómo se puede usar la principal ley contra la contaminación del aire del país para reducir las emisiones de dióxido de carbono de las centrales eléctricas. Con una votación de 6 a 3 con mayoría conservadora, la Corte dijo que la ley de aire limpio no otorga a la Agencia de Protección Ambiental amplia autoridad para regular las emisiones de gases de efecto invernadero de las centrales eléctricas que contribuyen al calentamiento global. La decisión, dijeron los defensores del medio ambiente y los jueces liberales disidentes fue un gran paso en la dirección equivocada. El fallo de la Corte podría complicar los planes de la administración para combatir el cambio climático. Su propuesta detallada para regular las emisiones de las centrales eléctricas se espera para finales de año. Aunque la decisión fue específica de la EPA, estuvo en línea con el escepticismo de la mayoría conservadora sobre el poder de las agencias reguladoras y envió un mensaje sobre posibles efectos futuros más allá del cambio climático y la contaminación del aire. En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema dijo el jueves que el gobierno de Biden puede descartar una política de inmigración de la era Trump para hacer que los solicitantes de asilo esperen en México para audiencias en los tribunales de inmigración de Estados Unidos. Una victoria para una Casa Blanca que aún debe resolver el creciente número de personas que buscan refugio en la frontera sur de los Estados Unidos. El fallo tendrá poco impacto inmediato porque la política rara vez se ha aplicado bajo el presidente Joe Biden, quien la restableció por orden judicial en diciembre. Por su parte, el Departamento de Seguridad Nacional dijo que acogía con beneplácito el fallo y que continuará sus esfuerzos para terminar el programa tan pronto como sea legalmente permisible. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. In Massachusetts, we have eight governor's counselors. This is an elected position of great significance, and most people, in my judgment, don't know it exists. Although, voters will be asked to vote for their next governor's counselor from the 8th District, which is most of Western Massachusetts, and we have with us this morning one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination for Governor's Counselor, Sean Allen. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start and start with the assumption for those of our listeners who say, I know all about the Governor's Council. I know what it does. I followed it for years. I've been really interested in the uh, <laughs> representation that has been provided by Mary Hurley, who's been the counselor for the past couple terms. Um, and she is not running for re-election this time. So, but let's start for those who are not uh, in that camp. Uh, what's the governor's council? What council, and why does it matter? Sure. Uh, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. So, the governor's council is probably, um, for some, the least known position, and it can be, and it is. I would suggest to you one of the most important positions. Um, it's as you just said. It's eight councilors elected district wide, and it's chaired by our lieutenant governor. And I think one of the most important things the Governor's Council does is um, 
they vet and confirm judicial nominations um, selected by the governor from individuals that apply that go, that go through the judicial nominating committee. Um, and they also um, confirm um, parole board members, which is also a very important part of our criminal justice system. Parole board members, there's seven of them. The chair is picked by the governor. Um, and they have a five-year term that's fixed. They can then be re-nominated or the governor could, the sitting governor could uh, determine not to um, reappoint them um, and select someone else. But uh, how this affects your average person is who your judges are. Who are the judges that are gonna administer justice? Who are the judges that um, are gonna receive um, people charged with crimes or defendants, receive the victims of crimes? Um, resolve civil disputes and the manner in which they do it, the manner in which a criminal defendant is treated, the manner in which a civil litigant is treated, and the manner in which uh, court staff is treated. And uh, it's very important to get the selection of a judge right because a lot of people don't realize that it's a lifetime appointment in Massachusetts, absent some extraordinary misconduct. So you only have one chance to get it right and it's important to get it right that we select judges that are qualified and we meet judges that reflect our the diverse community we sit in to have people uh, be judged by uh, people of their own peers um, without going into it too much tina page just had judge retired judge spirit court judge tina page just had her portrait unveiling and i mean i knew this and i think some of the public learned it from the publications there has not been a black judge um, appointed to the Superior Court bench in decades, except um, Tina Page. And I know, because I practice law every day with qualified um, African-American women and men um, that are definitely qualified. And one of the problems is we have to take um, the political connection out of the appointment of judges. The selection has to be based upon qualifications and not political connections. Yeah, we should note that in addition to the courts that uh, Sean Allen just mentioned, specifically, we also have probate and family courts where Correct. enormously consequential decisions are made every day. And then we have specialty courts like land court. Um, and although Governor Baker has now appointed all of the members of the Supreme Judicial Court, there are likely to be openings in the appeals court as well. Right. So there is a lot for the governor's counsel mm -hmm. to determine and to decide about in the coming years. Okay. So, Sean Allen, now that you've helped us understand what the governor's counsel does, why do you want this job and why do you think you're the most qualified person for it? We'll give you two minutes, so, for, two minutes for the stump speech. <laughs> okay. Um, I believe, Bill, um, I'm uniquely qualified out of any candidate in the field. I have been practicing law for 22 years. I've appeared in almost every um, district court and superior court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. On occasion, I've, I've appeared um, in the appeals court. I've taken 50 cases to full verdict with juries and, and done countless of um, jury wave trials. Who best to vet a judge than a lawyer that uh, practices before judges for over two decades, knows the ins and the outs of the bail statute, the criminal statute. Um, our firm has a unique um, background. We do a, a lot of significant amount of civil work um, as well. And the, and the other thing I'd like to mention within my two minutes is I've worked in the criminal justice system for my entire adult life. At age 24, I took a job at the KEEP program, for your viewers that don't know what that is. It's, um, they assign caseworkers um, to provide outreach and direct services to youths committed to DYS and uh, DSS, that's the Department of Youth Services and Family Services to assist them with educational, mental health needs. Um, and then I transitioned to become a social worker. I went to law school part-time in the evening and as a social worker, I protected children, victims of domestic violence, victims of um, sexual assault, abuse, um, I know what causes crime. I know what leads an individual into the criminal justice system. I have a vast amount of experience, and I, I, I believe I'm the, also the only candidate um, that's actively practiced in veterans court, drug court, mental health court, um, diverting people from the criminal justice system. Um, my, my experience is um, unique, and I believe um, I'm the best candidate to um, select qualified judges um, that will have years of effect on our uh, local communities. I think some listeners 
just had their interest uh, piqued by something you just said, Sean, which is uh, drug court, mental health court. Um, what are they? So just to give you the brief answer, Bill, um, it's not like any special judge gets assigned to these courts, but they're, 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 they're like subdivisions of the district court case, of the district courts that um, specialize in offenses. As an example, um, a drug user, someone that's addicted to substances, what keeps bringing them into the system? Um, is there an alternative um, way to prevent this from happening, to prevent reoffending? Can we give a just uh, disposition that's going to set the person up, not for failure, but for recovery? So there are, uh, as an example, in Hamden County, Judge Charles Gross is uh, basically chairing. He's the head of drug court. So if a, a person comes into the district court and they're eligible for drug court, they do an intake uh, with a clinician who looks at their background and they get diverted into the drug court. So the goal is not incarceration, it's treatment and rehabilitation. And that's that's what it's gotta be for a nonviolent offender. Um, and it may not be the first time, it may not be the second time, but uh, to help them recover over um, incarceration. Similarly, a lot of people, they come in and no one's focused on what's caused the crime. A lot of people have mental health and dual diagnosis issues. And very often the mental health goes untreated because everybody's focused on, well, what did they do? What was the quantity of drugs? This needs to be punished rather than to step it back a little bit and say, we know, and I know from two decades that you, and I've been appointed by the way, to represent over a thousand indigent um, defendants in my in in my career it's it's probably more than that and on occasion they've come in two or three times for the same thing um so mental health court uh, is also a court that will look at someone's psychological needs um, and again work on diversion rather than um incarceration our veterans court the most honored the least considered when they come in when they come into the door um, why is this veteran who comes back comes back from service um, drowning with substance abuse, um, mental health issues? Those that's a specialized court that um, that will look at a veteran, absolutely divert a veteran, give them a different disposition other than convictions, which you can carry on for years on your record. And we all know um, convictions also beyond the, the penalty of having to go to jail and that stigma, it just sticks with you. You have a hard time finding a job. Um, so those are really important courts um, to look at when you're, you're vetting judges, look at what their, their qualifications are, look at what their history is. Um, those are the things that matter. And those three things that I highlighted are one way to um, stop the revolving door of what people sometimes call as bad people or reoffenders, which those are labels and they're not labels I use, but they're labels in our trade that very often pe people use. But these are, are particularized courts where we need judges of skill um, and qualifications. And there's many lawyers that have clinical backgrounds that then become attorneys. They, they would make great judges. And there's uh, many of those individuals uh, within diversified communities that would make great judges, but that right now just isn't happening. We are speaking with Sean Allen. He is a partner in the Holyoke-based law firm of uh, Allen and Ball. He has been a practicing attorney here in Western Massachusetts for over two decades, and he is a candidate for the Governor's Council in the 8th District. The primary will be September 6th, and as a practical matter, I think the primary will decide who our next Governor's Counselor will be. It's a really important position. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll continue our conversation with Sean Allen right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself, and 
for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Jessica Eau Claire. Did you know you can start your pre-qualification or mortgage application online? Head on over to our new website at bestlocalbank.com and apply today. Or, if you prefer, come see us in person at one of our Hampshire or Franklin County locations. Right now, we're also giving you the opportunity to save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. That's right. You get $750 plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you for a mortgage. It's the best local mortgage from the best local bank. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Jessica Eau Claire, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before, whose names you don't know, going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots, wading through the meadow grass, looking at ducks, teal, blue wing, green wing, sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teaming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat, who are not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This Thoreau reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. On the September 6th primary ballot will be the candidates for governor's council. Sean Allen is one of the candidates for the governor's council and the Democratic for the Democratic nomination for governor's council. He has been with us this morning, and we really appreciate your time. Sean Allen is a partner in the Holyoke-based law firm of Allen & Ball. Sean, one aspect or one of the responsibilities of the governor's council and governor's counselor is to approve members of the parole board. And the parole board serve for extended terms and decide who is let out on parole and who is meant to, who will have to continue to serve time inside the razor wire. I'd appreciate your thoughts with regard to the responsibility of the governor's council and the governor's counselors to decide who sits on that very important body. Um, so, Bill, similarly to the selection of, of judges, uh, it's equally important to make sure um, that when the governor proposes um, a member to be appointed to the parole board, that that individual is vetted and um, we get it right. So currently, um, we have sent a governor's council to Boston to represent our jurisdictions that has, she ran on a platform um, and of when hell freezes over, would she ever vote for a pardon or a commutation? So a lot of people don't understand that other than first degree murder, but without the availability of parole, there's second degree murder and a person must serve um, at least 15 years of that sentence before they're then eligible for review uh, by the parole board who will vote and decide whether there's conditions of release after full, full um, profiles being brought before them as to whether a person should be released um, after 15. But, but obviously there's a host of other crimes other than murder where people are given minimum mandatory sentences, where people are sentenced as joint venturers. And that's a fancy word to say, sometimes someone gets sentenced for participating in something. Um, yeah, there's, there's sentence for something somebody else did. did um, which is the principle. And a lot of times people don't understand that. Um, I try, and a good example is I, I drive my friend to the store. Um, he's in the car, he goes in the, he goes in the convenience store. And he goes in and he kills somebody and then i'm i'm going to be 
it's it's a joint venture, felony murder. You can just be equally as culpable. Or he robs the, he robs the place, and now you're a joint venture in an armed robbery. Right, and you are going to be sentenced very often, depending on how the individual is indicted, which means charged, um, with the same culpability. And sometimes with minimum mandatory sentence, sentencing, without getting into too much of that, it takes the discretion away from the judge. And when we talk about minimum mandatory sentencing, you, you've got to look at the severity of um, the crime. But very often, uh, you know, that is a factor. But for a judge, um, they don't have the discretion when we, we talk about um, minimum mandatory sentences someone's coming in with drug offenses on multiple occasions because the judge then can't look at the person's mental health history um their history of uh, convictions with which which led up to a certain convictions it takes all those factors away so uh, i guess a check on that is the parole board because the parole board can release people and give them second chances, third chances. And, I, and I'm not really referring to, so your, your, your viewers know, murderers, people that would, would, could, could really expose people to high risk, but there are drug offenders that are just sitting dead time, um, doing time for, um, which we know drugs are not a, a, a victimless crime. We clearly know it, but we have people rotting in penal institutions where they could be probably more rehabilitated um, with certain structures and services um, with an ability to work. So it's, it's really important that we get the parole board um, in line with those philosophies. At one point, uh, pre-Romney, Governor Romney, I should say, it was really lopsided with prosecutors and correctionals. Um, it's becoming more balanced. Um, currently, our governor actually has nominated Dr. Mary Ann um, Galvin, who is a psychologist um, who really appears to be a really good candidate from looking at her history because she's done court evaluations, she's worked with juveniles and families. So she would, I'm sorry, put your- No, no, I was just letting you know we have a minute left. <laughs> a minute left, all right. Um, so that actually would put a different balance to, um, to, to the parole board, to the parole board with respect to voting and, and viewing um, with, uh, with a candidate. But very often, though, people are mistaken. It's not the governor's council. The governor's council only gets to vote on a, a commutation or a request for pardon. After the parole members agree, they submit it to the governor, then the governor degree, agrees, and then the governor would submit it to her council um, for approval. So the governor's council has the final word on this, on whether or not to approve a commutation. It does, but the most important thing is the, it, it really comes to us. So you have to get it right with the selection of who's on the parole board with respect to what are the values of our community? What do we want to see happen with um, low-level low offenders or people that have been um, unjustly sentenced? And again, parole uh, addresses injustices in the criminal justice system. They happen every day. Um, and we got to go. So it's really, really important that we get it right. Sean Allen is candidate for the governor's council in the 8th district. The Democratic primary is September 6th. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Bill. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned. Funded by the U.S. Administration on Aging, the New England Pension Assistance Project has a proven track record of success in obtaining benefits for its clients. From challenging pension denials and miscalculations to helping with the division of retirement assets in divorce and tracking down retirement benefits from past employers, the New England Pension Assistance Project has recovered more than $42 million in retirement benefits for its clients by providing them with free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067. That's 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service message from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.